Good morning and welcome to Copper Country Today, Houghton Community Broadcasting's weekly look at the issues and people that are important to the Keweenaw. I'm Todd Van Dyke. This week, our spiraling COVID-19 numbers have forced changes in how authorities are dealing with the pandemic. Kate Beer from the Western UP Health Department will fill us in. And on opening day, we'll get our annual deer hunt update from John DePew and Mark Pomeroy of the DNR. Stand by for Copper Country Today. It's brought to you by the Portage Health Foundation. The season of giving kicks in on December 1st with Giving Tuesday. Portage Health Foundation is proud to be matching up to $200,000 in donations to 18 area nonprofits, including Dial Help, Dan Schmidt Gift of Music, Copper Harbor Trails Club, Copper Country Senior Meals, Big Brothers Big Sisters, Barbara Kettle Gunlock Shelter, Barrier County Shelter Home, Amik Village Volunteer Fire and Rescue Department, and 31 Backpacks. See a full list of nonprofits and learn how to donate at phfgive.org slash givingtuesday. Welcome to another edition of Copper Country Today. I'm Todd Van Dyke. We're brought to you by the Portage Health Foundation. Learn more about them at phfgive.org. The COVID numbers across the Copper Country and indeed across the state and the nation are not looking very good right now. And the increase in cases is causing stress in a lot of places, including the Western Upper Peninsula Health Department, which has had to make some changes in how they're approaching the way they deal with the pandemic. So I thought I'd bring Kate Beer, the Chief Health Officer from the Western UP Health Department, onto the program this morning to get an update. Kate, I know you're busy. Thank you for your time. Oh, thank you, Todd, for uh, having us on. Much appreciated. Let's talk about things. Uh, we had a report uh, on the air last week and another one earlier uh, this past week about the changes that you're having to make with the health department and with your staff and how you're tracking things. How busy have you guys gotten? So, you know, over the last, uh, you know, three weeks or so, we, we've just seen an explosion of cases and, you know, earlier on, you know, say August and September, where we would see maybe um, small clusters of outbreaks within individual counties, what we're seeing now is that all five of our counties are experiencing significant increases in caseload at the same time. So that, that's really put a strain on our, our resources, both, you know, financially and just human, human resource capacity. Yeah, it's something that I'm not sure we think too much about. Obviously, we think about how busy all of you and your staff people are, but this all costs money from somewhere, doesn't it? It does. We, you know, we do have some uh, extra funding that has been received down through the state through federal grants. Uh, you know, to hire additional staff, which we have, we've actually, um, you know, hired several staff to to just concentrate on contact or contact tracing and case investigation. Uh, we, our most recent hire was just brought on this week. So, you know, we've, we've kind of expanded our staffing level to try to meet that need, but the, the, it, you know, with the amount of cases we're seeing that, that it just is, it, we're just not able to keep up anymore. Yeah. The, um, the, and it's gotten you, out of hand you'll here. See this across, right. And, and you'll see this, you know, that, this is happening all over the, not only the UP, but in the state where all of the health departments are kind of in the same situation where, you know, even the ramp up in capacity that we're doing is just not enough to handle the um, explosion of cases that we're seeing. What had you been doing to try to notify when people came? Well, if somebody was diagnosed with a case, you obviously would sit down with them. You'd talk about where they'd been. How far down that line and how far out would you go to try to notify people who might be in danger? What was the old well, way? It, so, you know, the old way um, was, was, was really that we would contact every case and we would go through a case investigation process that was quite lengthy, trying to get in all the data points that are, are expected of us from uh, the CDC. And then we would go through the contact tracing process and enter all of those contacts into the state system. Um, the state trace force system would then take, you know, on that job duty of contacting individuals daily to monitor their symptoms. So that was, you know, the basic way that we started doing this with a, a really intense case investigation that met all of the data parameters that the CDC is requiring of us. That was then. 
but then the cases kind of went out of control. How are you approaching it now? What changes have you made? So right now we are we are kind of trying to work at this from multiple fronts. So like I said, we did hire additional staff. Another thing that we're doing is uh, we have been working with some state partners and we are reducing the amount of data that we're collecting in a case interview. So, you know, right now, um, I think the state has enough data points that uh, we don't need to ask every person were they a former smoker, right? We, we, we can, you know, do a, a abbreviated case investigation that gets the pertinent things under, out of the way, such as, you know, when did you experience symptoms? Do you, where do you work? Um, and do you have any close contacts? And, you know, giving more attention to that education process of when you should seek additional medical attention. Um, We are still entering uh, contacts as, you know, as best as we can. And those are being followed by the trace force system at the state. However, that state trace force system is overwhelmed right now also. So there's at every point here, there seems to be a lag between you know, when someone feels sick to when they can get in to get tested to when that test result comes back to when we can get to that um, case investigation. So we really need to look at speeding up that process. I sat Um, in on one of the meetings that you had a week and a half or so ago online. And one of the things that you mentioned uh, really disappointed me in that as you have reached out to try to tell people that they may be at risk and to find out who might else be at risk, there are people who are not paying attention to your calls or even hanging up on you? Yes, and that, that's gotten uh, worse as we've progressed here. So, you know, we spend a lot of our time, uh, the you know, the nurses calling people, leaving voicemails, uh, and, and those rec- those calls are either never returned or people hang up on us. So, you know, that's time that we can, you know, spend getting to the next person then. So we've revamped that process a little bit. Also, you know, we are making first attempts to try to get a hold of somebody. And if we can't get a hold of you right away, then, uh, you know, we send a certified letter. So, But, it, you know, it's really a person's responsibility to call us back and, and to discuss their case with us. Well, and I don't know why this hasn't sunk in to certain segments of the society. This is not about, if you call me, it's not about me. I mean, it's partly about me, but it's partly about all of the other dozens of people that I may have come in contact with over the last few days who might be at risk. This is not something that I can just blow off and say, well, I really, if if I get it, I'll deal with it, because I may have infected others. That's, that's correct, and, and that's, that's our only tool right now in mitigating how this virus is, is you know, spreading within our community. So if, if we can get a hold of somebody and find out, um, you know, what kind of exposure risk they may have you know, posed to other people, then maybe we can, you know, start reducing the spread within the community because, you know, the goal here has not changed. The goal through this whole thing has been to reduce you know, the, you know, to kind of flatten that curve and reduce the surge within the hospital capacities. So, you know, that goal has not gone away. And that's really the only tool that we have to, to flatten that curve a little bit when it does spike is, you know, this contact tracing and case investigation so that we can, you know, quarantine people in the right amount of time so that, you know, it can, it can prevent them from spreading it to other people. Talking with Kate Beer from the Western UP Health Department. You mentioned hospitalizations. Uh, Just very recently, a bunch of the hospital CEOs and medical officers got together and said, we have a real problem going on here. We're filling up, and if we don't get these numbers under control, we may find ourselves in a position where we are going to have trouble serving people and keeping people alive. How have we been here in the Western Upper Peninsula? Do you keep records of how many people are hospitalized, how many wind up in intensive care, and what the hospital capacity is? So we we do have regular discussions with uh, the hospital systems in our area. Right now, what we're seeing, and and this has been the pattern for for a few weeks now, is on on, on a, you know, our daily, on any given day, we have between three and seven people that are hospitalized for COVID related issues. We do see many people that are you know, maybe in and out of the ER or in and out of express care just for some minor um, symptoms. 
and then you know we 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 are kind of keeping an eye on transfer capacity. So you know within our hospital systems up here, there's the ability of maybe transferring um, patients from one community to another community hospital. Um, but one of our our big players, of course, is Marquette General. So we keep an eye on Marquette General to see if there is transfer capacity there. And then you know we we also look towards our partners at you know, down in Wausau to make sure that there's, you know, sufficient capacity to transfer down there. Right now, um, Wisconsin numbers are extremely high. The transfer capacity for Wausau is, uh, you know, extremely limited right now, and they've opened up a uh, field hospital in Medford. So, you know, we are seeing where those, those lines are tightening up a little bit, you know, but we do want to caution that we, we don't want to get into an you know, a, a spot to where people are delaying much needed care and, um, you know, having regular health issues that, that go awry and are, are needing emergency services either. So, you know, it, it, we, we aren't to capacity yet, but we are seeing where, you know, things are filling up a little bit quicker. Yeah, and we don't have a ton of hospital capacity, uh, particularly here in the Keweenaw, and we don't have a lot of emergency, a lot of um, uh, intensive care beds available to us. So everybody who can manage to keep away from getting the COVID and not having to go to the hospital, that's a significant help to all of our healthcare people. Right, and that that's, that goes back to our goal is to flatten that curve so that not as many people need healthcare services at one time. So let's um, you know another limiting maybe another limiting factor within our communities is always staffing. So you know when we look at the ability of a healthcare partner to staff up, if if we see a significant outbreak within our staffing resources for for healthcare. That that's a limited resource for us. There's there's no one else we can call to hand that responsibility over to. So that is another thing that we watch and a concern that we have is, you know, whether or not our our local healthcare staffing resources are sufficient to meet the need. Yeah, we can't snap our fingers and make more doctors and nurses. That's correct. So, so let's go back to the basics here because we've, and we've talked about this so many times, but what are the best things that any of us can do to help keep ourselves from getting COVID-19? Right. So, you know, back to those original conversations that we were having in March and April, you know, about, you know, washing your hands and, you know, not going to work when you're sick. That's been a, a big one recently that we've seen is, is people that are working sick and they become positive And, you know, we have a lot of contact tracing issues with that. Um, you know, and of course, wearing a mask is, it can be controversial, but it, it really does help with, with spreading the virus within closer settings. Um, and small gatherings are really a must. You know, we we can't keep having huge funerals, weddings, or other social gatherings where the opportunity for the virus just spreads exponentially. Um, there is concern, of course, coming up. You know, we've got uh, the big, you know, holiday of deer season and deer camp, and then we will go right from that into Thanksgiving. So we do have some concern with family gatherings, and, you know, we're hoping that people keep them small. This yeah, year. yeah I, I talked with my parents uh, the other day, and I said, "Listen, uh, I I can't risk coming down for Thanksgiving. They live downstate; they're both around age ninety. I can't risk bringing something into their house that would infect them and maybe other members of the family. And it feels badly. I'm not going to be able to get to see them for Thanksgiving, and probably not for Christmas either. And that doesn't sit well with me, but." I've got to put their health first. It's it's not about me wanting to see them. It's about them staying healthy. And that's the approach I guess we have to take. Yeah, it's it's real difficult, you know, with our elderly population. We've seen that play out down in Gogebic County. We had an outbreak in a nursing home there where we had 11 deaths out of that nursing home. And, and it's really hard, you know, when we're talking to the staff of those nursing homes because you know, they've, they've become family to the residents there. And it, it's really heartbreaking when I get those calls to, you know, give me the list of what the deaths were that day. 
And, you know, we, we really need to protect, you know, those people that we love and, you know, be aware that, that our actions here have some consequences. Yeah, I know you had a significant outbreak at uh, one of the long-term care facilities in Ontonagon County as well, did you not? That That's ongoing right now. Um, there are, um, I believe there's 32 residents over there, and all 32 have uh, been tested positive now for COVID. So we are, you know, assisting with some monitoring over there of that situation to, you know, to make sure we don't um, have it spread from there further into the community. Um, although, you know, Ontonagon has overall, Ontonagon County has a, a huge outbreak going on right now. Um, so, yeah, we're keeping our eye on that one very closely. Yeah, we already a, have, I believe, at least one death out of there. Has to, has to be a huge, huge challenge for staff in situations like that because long-term care, it's kind of hard to provide that at a six-foot distance. It is, and, you know, that's, you know, we've got, that's probably one of our most vulnerable workforce and our most vulnerable population. So, yeah, it, it, they are doing, uh, you know, testing of um, both staff and residents weekly and in most of the major facilities, if not all right now, um, trying to get ahead of any sort of an outbreak. So the, it's, it's more of a surveillance testing so that staff and, and residents, if they get any indication that there might be a positive in those populations that, that we can you know, isolate those positives immediately before it spreads within a facility. So, Kate Beer, let's refresh again then on what the symptoms are and what I should do if I think maybe I'm infected. So, you know, if you're if you believe you're infected, you know, of course, you know, don't go to work, stay home, quarantine, and perhaps call your your healthcare provider. You know, the symptoms um, have ranged, uh, you know, mainly, you know, the fever is, is a big indicator. Um, you know, one of the, the biggest things that we're seeing now, and this has been a little more prevalent as this has rolled out, is loss of taste and smell. Uh, those have been, been big indicators to us for, for people that are positive. Um, headache is also, you know, has been um, one of the bigger symptoms that we've seen. Um, you know, one of the issues that we're seeing with, with uh, COVID is, of course, a lot of the symptoms are similar to what you would see with either flu or strep throat or, you know, any of those those kind of illnesses. So that's where, you know, having that conversation with your healthcare provider can be very important to the decision of whether or not you should get tested. And that's the first step is to call your family physician, your your personal physician? Well, your first step would be uh, to stay home. Well, yeah, okay. <laughs> and then, you know, yeah, <laughs> from there, I would say, yep, call your physician, um, you know, or notify your employer. I, I believe employers are pretty understanding right now because employers know, um, you know, we've been through enough contact tracing with employers that, that they understand that, you know, one positive case in their workforce can be pretty devastating. So, um, you know, make those couple calls and then, and then talk to your healthcare provider. But we don't like skipping work here in this area. We are youpers. We work hard. We work through things. This is counterintuitive for a lot of us, I think, to stay home when we're not quite feeling well. No, I, I get it. And, um, you know, I'm much the same way. Um, but, you know, we, we've got a lot of opportunities now to work remotely. And, you know, we've even found with our discussions with the school that oftentimes taking that one or two day pause and figuring things out, uh, you know, can really go a long way for keeping keeping you open long term. Masks are critical at this point. Is there one kind of mask that has turned out to be perhaps a little bit more effective than others? Um, I think you know, just wearing a mask, getting somebody to wear a mask is is the the biggest thing that we can do. Um, you know, really what we would like to see is, you know, a mask that is maybe two layers of at least cloth. Um, one of the things that we, we kind of like to, to say is, you know, you know, you've got a good mask if you can hold it up to the light and you can't see your fingers through it. So, um, you know, really what you're trying to do is, is stop those droplets from, you know, going any further. So any sort of a mask that you wear at this point is good. Um, you know, much better than wearing nothing at all. 
There was a comment made at the Holton City Council meeting this week, uh, Eric Warris saying that business owners, at least in Houghton, uh, have gotten a much better handle on how to run their businesses during this COVID-19 situation than they had a few months ago when there were some who were kind of pushing the envelope on things. But I still see places where masks are not being worn by staff, masks are not being worn by customers. Who enforces this? Does anybody enforce this? And if you go into a place and you consistently see that the rules aren't being followed, should that be reported to somebody? So unfortunately, right now, the masking enforcement, you know, has uh, really no, um, you know, one person that's in charge of it. And what we're really trying to do is take more of an approach of educating the community and, you know, the stance that, you know, people, if they want to see businesses stay open, this is one method to do that. You know, um, if we don't take control of it locally and we don't mitigate this locally, then, you know, we may see more phase restrictions come down from the state. And that's really what we don't want for our small businesses is to have the state come in and and shut us down again. Um, But if we don't get control over it locally, then that's what we're seeing, that that may happen. And the numbers in our region still are basically about the worst in the state, aren't they? They are, and they continue to climb. Um, we're seeing that across the UP right now, that, that numbers are surging. Uh, there's a couple counties that, that seem to be immune a little bit, but um, it, you know, overall, the majority of counties in the UP are, are seeing escalating numbers. Yeah, but we thought we were immune a little bit last summer in our area, too, and look how that turned out. Yeah, didn't 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 turn out so well, did it? No, it didn't. Where where did we go wrong, or did we go wrong, or was this inevitable? Well, you know, I I believe it it's probably was inevitable. Um, you know, there again, you know, the goal has always been to flatten the curve, um, and we we you know until there is a, a resolution, which would be in the form of probably a vaccine. So. Oh, we're still always fighting against that curve until that vaccine comes. Yeah, and, and you know, yeah, with with us opening up a little bit more this summer, I I believe that you know it just was inevitable. But boy, with winter tourism coming up, we, de- we depend on those snowmobilers. We depend on those cross country skiers and downhill skiers. They're going to look at that map and they're going to say, "Well, maybe not." So it's not only important to our physical health to get these numbers down, it's important to our economic health to get these numbers down as well. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, You know, our ability to to control the, and mitigate, 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 excuse me, mitigate any outbreaks is, you know, really going to play play, uh, an important role in our ability to come out of this economically. Now, they are making hopeful noises about the vaccine that Pfizer has been working on. Have, do you hear anything about this that doesn't come out in the, the news? Do you get any inside information on how this might work out? So the local health departments will be tasked with a pretty large role in how uh, the vaccine is, is rolled out eventually. Um, what we're looking at now is these vaccines that they're producing, particularly the Pfizer one, has to be stored at an ultra-cold temperature. So logistically, that that is a bit of a nightmare. Um, and the from what I'm understanding is they're being shipped in large quantity of doses. So it's going to be harder to break apart those packages and send them to, you know, widespread rural locations. So we're working, um, you know, closely with with our state partners to try to figure this out um, across the UP, Uh, you know, and that's one of the the other reasons for us as an agency looking at how we need to prioritize our cases and our work, because once that vaccine rolls out, that also then becomes an important mitigation tool within our toolbox to, you know, work closely with our partners to get vaccine in the arms of people that, that need it. I was going to ask how many. I was going to ask how many freezers. I was going to ask how many freezers we had in the Copper Country that can get down to a hundred <laughs> degrees below zero Fahrenheit. That's cold. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, right now, I believe there's some capacity in Marquette. You know, there's just many um, questions surrounding the logistics of how you transport 
um, something at that cold temperature. Once once it comes out of that temperature, you can uh, only store it for about five days in a regular refrigerator. So it has to use be used up rather quickly once it thaws out. Speaking so, of um, speaking of vaccines, the other one is increasingly important this year. The flu vaccine got mine the other day. Uh, that's extra important this year. It is. It is. It's going to help with um, you know any any sort of uh, healthcare capacity issues that we have. So you know the more flu that we can prevent, that's that's more hospital capacity or healthcare capacity in general that we can open up. Um, you know to take care of COVID related patients. And heaven forbid you wind um, up with COVID and influenza at the same time. Yes, and we, we have seen a couple cases of that in our communities. We've I, th- I think across the five-county ju- jurisdiction, we've probably had three cases so far that they've presented with both flu and COVID. Oh, that's got to be just completely miserable <laughs> and, uh, it is. and probably life-threatening. Yeah. Kate Beer from the Western UP Health Department, thank you for the update and continued best wishes and thanks to your staff. I know how hard you guys are working. Thanks, Todd. I appreciate you having us on. This week, there will be a mobile food pantry in Ontonagon at Ontonagon Village Fire Hall on Thursday at noon. Food will be available on a first-come, first-served basis with various items for approximately 300 families. No proof of income is required thanks to Ontonagon Area Schools and Feeding America West Michigan for making this possible. This is being funded by the Portage Health Foundation COVID-19 Community Recovery Fund. You can donate to support the fund at phfgive.org slash COVID-19. Mobile food pantries are scheduled in Hancock, Berga, and Ontonagon through the end of the year. The next is Thursday at noon in Ontonagon. Segment two of Copper Country Today here on this uh, actually opening day of the firearm deer hunting season. I'm Todd Van Dyke. Our program is brought to you by the Portage Health Foundation. Find out more about them at phfgive.org. I mentioned opening day because it's time for an update as to the firearm deer hunting season. And joining me again this year, and I appreciate them both coming back, John DePew and Mark Pomeroy from the Michigan Department of Natural Resources. It's time to preview the hunt, gentlemen. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Todd. How are you? Doing well, and uh, I, I'm happily at home on Sunday morning. But uh, uh, but my family has a long history of deer hunting, and we do have a camp yet. Uh, it's not used for hunting anymore, but we have one out south of Kenton. So uh, the deer hunting season, even though I don't participate, is certainly something that's a very fond memory within our, our families. This has been a little bit different year for you guys, I suspect, preparing for the season, because I know the DNR has had some cutbacks and some changes because of the COVID-19 situation. Are you guys ready for the season? Yeah, I mean, I would say on the the wildlife side of things, yeah, we are. You know, we had to get some special exemptions to be able to host a whole deer check this year, but we we got those through. And uh, we have some safety protocols and procedures in place, of course, um, to be able to check deer, but but we'll be able to. So we will be checking uh, deer um, throughout the UP, but specifically to the listening area here uh, at our office in Barriga on uh, US Highway 41. This year, uh, shorter, uh, much shorter deer check season. We'll, we will be checking deer um, on November 15th, 16th, 17th, and 18th. So as this um, airs, as this airs, we're talking uh, today, tomorrow, and oh, Tuesday. Oh. Um, what are you checking for when you do these deer checks? Uh, well, we get the... Um, Sex and age demographics, so we'll, we'll age the deer. Of course, we'll know if it's a male or female doe or buck. Um, and that gives us an understanding of, of what's happening with the deer population. And, of course, uh, you know, we get folks that bring their deer to be checked, uh, a deer patch, um, a sexual, successful deer harvester's patch, which changes every year. Kind of a neat collector's item. This year, we are only uh, interested in um, collecting samples um, to test for chronic wasting disease from the core area down in Dickinson and Menominee County. However, if folks are interested in having their deer uh, tested for chronic wasting disease, we have some information where uh, some independent labs where they can send um, their samples to be tested, but we're we're not doing that this year, um, just focusing on the core area. 
So you're going to be there today, tomorrow, and Tuesday. Suppose I shoot my 16-point buck on Wednesday, and I want my patch. Can I still get one? Well, it's going to be tricky. Um, we'll see if we have any patches left, and we'll see um, what we're able to do. But right now, we're we're only scheduled to do deer check um, these four days. And that's just um, you know what, what we kind of planned for with our protocols, safety protocols, and, and everything in place. So um there there are some other check stations um and you can look at the check stations we have uh, a pretty decent functioning uh michigan dnr deer check stations uh, website um kind of interactive there are other check stations that are open longer uh, through the firearm season where you can take it um but the best chance is to get it get you know get it down to us in the first four days or um or find one a check station that's open now, and John, too, I, if I might add here, too, I, you know, those are the days that are scheduled for the check station. If you're able to make it then, we'll be there. Our staff will be there to get you a patch if, if you're successful later in the year. Um, there's no guarantees, like John said, but if you wanted to give our bear office a call, um, you know, have patience. We may be able to help you. There's just no guarantees after those dates. But a phone call if the staff members are available, we'll try to help with um with the COVID stuff, we're just limited on, on the staffing that we're, we're allowed to have, and it's just allowed for those certain days. So, Yeah, how coveted are those patches? Are there people who really do pursue getting one each year? Definitely. They're, they're very well sought after, and uh, it's important if people feel they are for their, their collection. Uh, there is some some valuable data that they collect year after year, and they can make comparisons. So um, they're valuable on both ends. All right. I know, too, that because of some of the COVID cutbacks and uh, staff reassignments and things of that nature, that you weren't able to put together quite as uh, big a prediction as to what the deer herd was going to be like. And you'd usually put together quite a nice spread about uh, what we think the, the hunt is going to be like, what the status of the deer herd is. What do we know about the herd at this point, and what do we think the hunt will be like? Well, I, I, you know, we have been able to talk to some hunters and get out um, in, in the field um, ourselves a little bit. You know, I'll speak specific to the West UP, probably a lot of your listening area here, um, Houghton, Keweenaw, Berga, Ontonagon counties. Um, it's, you know, it seems like it should be comparable, maybe even slightly up to to last firearm season, the deer season in general. Um, the agricultural areas seem to have a lot of deer, even in the in the big woods I've been out, and there's deer tracks and sign kind of all over the place this year. Uh, you know, Mark can speak to what the conservation officers have been seeing. but um, Yeah, we, we all over the way have not seen a lot through the whole COVID process here. Uh, other than our staff and our offices, we, we're basically working from home, um, doing our same, same job functions, um, maybe some more uh, focus on public safety. Um, but, but no, we still have boots on the ground. We still have people out in the field. And uh, what I see being a, a big factor, there's plenty of whitetails to go around. But what's the weather going to do in the um, opening day um, and the next couple of days? The wind, uh, if we're going to get rain, what kind of weather conditions? Uh, that's going to affect the hunter involvement as well as the, the deer movement. So a, a good majority of our deer are harvested in the first few days of the season. Um like John said, I think there's plenty of deer to go around. Uh, how is the weather going to affect our, our hunting hours put in the woods is going to be a factor as the season progresses. So. And I'm offering my usual bounty for anybody who shoots a deer on the south side of Snake River Hill because that's where I keep hitting them on my way to work in the morning, and I know there are plenty of them there again this year. So if you if, 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 if you if you shoot a deer there, you call me in the morning. We'll talk. <laughs> I'll buy you, I'll buy you lunch or at least something because uh, we'd we'd like to get that area depopulated. My car fenders would appreciate it. Let's let's talk safety. We always want to do this as we go into the the hunting season because every year, unfortunately, we have some tragedies. We have people who die from natural causes. We have people who die from gunshots, uh, things of that nature. What are the things that people need to be really careful about when they go out into the woods? I think that's a great topic to cover here. Um, the way we look at it is most of what people have called accidents in the past. Uh, we're calling those hunting incidents now because there's an underlying error 
where a cause, uh, something went wrong that in most cases, not all, but most cases, something went wrong that could have been prevented. Um, the, the biggest thing we've already had one incident uh, in Burger County this year is just identifying your target, um, knowing what you are shooting at um, before you even decide to shoot. Um, you cannot shoot and check after you shoot. Uh, know what you're aiming at. Is it a buck or a doe? Making sure it's a deer. What's behind it uh, is a big thing. And especially in those low light light times, um, uh, <clears throat> things turn into shapes and shades, and it, it can be very difficult. Maybe a little fog, a little bit of weather in there. Um, so that's the number one thing is just identifying your target. And as a hunter yourself, you're, you're required to wear your hunter's orange. And I tell people, wear as much hunter's orange as you possibly can because the deer are not going to see your orange. Anyway, um, these seem a little hunting. It helps in brushy conditions. Um, if you're in your blind, you still got to have your hunter's orange on in your blind. So if you turn your heater on and you get wet, you technically cannot take your orange garments off. And, uh, I get this question every year, well, why can't we have it sitting in my blind? Well, what happens if a, if a deer comes in, your jacket's on the hook, you shoot the deer, what happens? Your door flies open in your shack or your tent, off you go tracking your deer, and then now, where's your hunter's orange garment? It came in your blind because you forgot to put it on and all the chaos that took place. So that's another common, common safety um, issue that we cover. Yeah, and I know some people with the hunter's orange situation, particularly if you get a warm day, you like to take that jacket off, you're feeling a little bit uh, sweaty, and you take that jacket off, and all of a sudden you're invisible from you know 20 or 30 feet sometimes. Correct. So if you take your jacket off, make sure you got an orange hat on. Uh, a simple orange hat will meet the requirements of the hunter's orange law. Um, just do not take all of your hunter's orange off, even in sitting in your blind. Um, I've, I've seen some bad situations revolve from that. And certainly there are orange things you can wear underneath the jacket as well. You can get orange shirts, you can get orange, orange. pants and things of that nature. There are, there are plenty of options there, yes. We also, of course, each year we get reports about people who have unfortunately suffered heart attacks. They have uh, suffered strokes, things of that nature out, out in the woods. And it's important, first of all, I suppose, not to overexert yourself. If you're, if you're like me and you don't get around much, don't try to go out on a 10-mile hunting hike. No. Nope. And, and right along with that is, is letting people know where you're hunting, especially if you're going to be hunting by yourself. Um, let somebody know. So if you're if you're overdue, and you did have a medical issue or something's just not right, we need to know another one. We need to know where do we start our search to try and find you. Yeah, and that um, was going to be that was going to be my next point. Is that uh, we've had some long searches here in the past. Uh, we had a gentleman who went out a few years ago, and I don't believe his body has been found yet. Um, because Correct. we didn't know exactly where, and we we need to have that information. If you're not hunting with somebody who can bring the information back and say, "Hey, uh, I can't find him. We were here." Um, mm-hmm. Make sure that uh, make sure that somebody knows where you are and what time you're due back, so that they can call if there's a problem. That's correct. That that really uh, uh, helps out. So. This year, too, um, we're concerned about COVID-19. Out, uh, Not necessarily while you're out in the field all by yourself, because uh, we don't, as far as we know, we don't know the whitetails carry it. But, boy, uh, some of those camps, things get a little close there. People get a little chummy. And all of a sudden, we could have some real COVID-19 breakouts, I suppose. Do you guys, have you guys been reading up on that, talking about that within the DNR? I, I think the biggest thing is uh, there's no exceptions to all the safety precautions that have been stressed for months and months for deer season. So the same uh, safety precautions you should be taking in your everyday life uh, apply for deer season and if you choose to go to deer camp. So um, be safe and, and be, be cautious. Yeah, and yeah, uh, uh, go ahead. I'll touch on that. I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll touch on that Todd, real quick. Is um, um, just to kind of reiterate, if you bring your deer down to be checked at any of our Michigan DNR deer check stations, you'll be required to wear a mask. Um, for the most part, we'll ask you to stay in your vehicle, and we'll check your deer, you know, on your tailgate. Um, um, 
and, and get you checked in all from you, hopefully just staying in your vehicle. Um, but we do ask that you wear masks. We will will be wearing masks and rubber gloves and taking all our safety precautions to make sure both both the hunter and our employees are safe. Yeah, and this may be the year where you have to look at the situation and say, I love staying out at camp because, let's face it, half of the deer hunting season charm is the atmosphere and the camaraderie at camp. But maybe this is the year where you travel back and forth from home to do some hunting and you don't carpool with others. You do it by yourself and meet somebody at the site so that you're not sharing potentially those COVID-19 germs. And uh, Because what we don't want is to have you bringing them back to your family, right? Absolutely. And then, yeah, absolutely. That's, yeah. that's the good thing to look at is, uh, you know, it, all the safety precautions, everything you've been doing up until this point, I continue to do that with, with deer camp if you choose to open deer camp this year. Um, be careful, cautious, have fun, but um, don't take the two weeks off from uh, taking care of yourself and being cautious. Yeah, but and and of course at deer camp we tend to drink a little bit. We have a few beers, we have a little of this, a little bit of that. The guard tends to go down, unfortunately, after we've had a few drinks, and that's something we need to watch for too. Yeah, and I'll and I'll stress too that, you know, your alcohol and your firearms don't mix. Um there's a time and place for it and if you choose to participate in that, um, uh, you know, Make sure uh, you're not handling firearms and and uh, be safe because there are regulations for hunting on rifles, similar as driving driving motor vehicles. So that's something that we do check for, and uh, unfortunately, we do run across that during deer season. Yeah, your guys, uh, somebody in the DNR sent out a list that I got a, a while back, and I thought uh, it might be nice to go down this with you guys today. It's, it's the top 10 hunting violations, and I thought it would be interesting to talk about some of these, because some of them surprised me, including the number one violation, which is using the wrong tag or improperly filling out a tag. How much trouble can you get in if you get the wrong tag on? Well, I think if you look at the intent of the person, um, we run into a, a lot of violations when you when you go and purchase your deer licenses for the year. You have the option of going with a two tag system, but that comes with some antler point restrictions. If you buy a single tag license, um, you don't have your antler point restrictions. You can shoot whichever antler deer you want, um, but the catch is you're done after that. If you filled your single tag license, you're done hunting for the year for firearm season. So that's where a lot of the tagging stuff comes in. As a, a subject will buy a single deer tag, harvest the deer right away in the beginning of the season, and now they want to keep hunting. So they either hunt without a license, or they call somebody to bring them a license to cover the deer that they just shot because they don't want to be done hunting. So um, that's where a lot of the violations that we come into play of, of using other people's tags or mistagging uh, animals. Um, and that's for the officers to decide. We see honest mistakes every year where people just simply put the wrong tag on the wrong, on the wrong deer, honest violation. But um, in the same sentence, too, we do see a lot of people are trying to play games with um, using tags that grandma bought or um, a relative bought just to cover so they can continue to keep hunting. So um, know that when you buy your, buy your licenses. And if you're successful, you're in a single thing. Celebrate the deer that you harvested, but realize uh, your, your hunt is over. Talking with John DePew and Mark Pomeroy from the Department of Natural Resources as we get the firearm deer hunting season underway. Let's see, number two on the list was uh, something we already addressed. That was not wearing orange, although I guess I'm old enough to remember when the primary color was red. And all of the hunters from our camp uh, had red stuff. And when the orange thing came in, then we had to retire all of that and buy orange. But it's not that tough to keep in orange, is it? Not at all. You can pick up an orange vest, an orange hat. It's unlimited where you can pick it up. You can buy it at a gas station if you forgot to bring it with you. And every camp has plenty of orange garments. Uh, um, there's really no excuse to not have your, your hunter's orange hat. Yeah, even even though we don't hunt out of our camp anymore, uh, there are plenty of orange hats and things like that around that you can wear. And and to think about that too, not necessarily when you're just out hunting, tracking the deer, waiting for the deer, but if you're just out and out and about around your camp, there may be people who are not familiar, who don't know the camp is there. If you're headed to the outhouse or if you're headed to get wood, it doesn't hurt to throw something orange on at that point. Nope, not at all. 
Number three was being unfamiliar with a firearm and how it functions. I suppose that speaks for itself, but I'm sure every year you guys run into folks who have little firearm accidents. Yep, and like I said earlier, I, 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 in my line of work, I don't call it an accident, I'll call it an incident, because you obviously did something that caused that firearm to go off. They don't go off by themselves. Yeah. Um, be comfortable if, you, if you're borrowing a gun from somebody. Um, you you want to be proficient with it and it safely handle that fire before you pull it out of the case on opening morning. Yeah, and I know that there are a lot of good uh, conservation clubs in the area, and there are going to be people at those clubs over the next couple of weeks in and out. And if you have a firearm and you're not familiar how to use it, I know a lot of people who are associated with those clubs. They're good people, and uh, there are people there, if you contact them, they'll be happy to, to give you some lesson, give you a show as to how it works so that you can make sure that you're safe with your firearm. Number four on the list, let's see, what was it? Oh, hang on, i got to scroll down my list here. Committing safety zone violations. What is a safety zone violation? A safety zone violation would be hunting or discharging your firearm within 450 feet of an occupied dwelling or outbuilding. Um, we don't see a lot of that here because we're, we're generally a more remote of an area. Um, when you get into smaller, heavily populated areas where there's, um, I can say, larger populations, is, is further violations are found there. Up in our neck of the woods, I list in the area here. Generally, people are where it's, it's 150 yards or 450 feet away from the occupied camp, um, house, farm operation. Um, you can't be hunting with a firearm that close. So. Yeah, I can see that being more of a downstate issue. Um, and, and this next one as well, trespassing. Um, probably more of a situation downstate where there's more private property up here. Um, something certainly to keep in mind, but where we have a lot more public land, I suppose trespassing is a bit less of a problem than it is downstate? I would say less of a problem, but it still exists. Um, you, you need to know where you are. It's up to you to know if you're on public or private property. Um, where we run into that a lot is people um, that take a ride in the vehicle and what's generally referred to as roadheads. They see a deer on the side of the road and they completely forget where they are. They don't abide by uh, fencing gates or signs because they're so fixated on the deer that's standing there. Um, so it, it does happen up here. I said people, uh, I guess, they get excited in the moment a lot of times and, and lose all regard for what property they're actually on. So um, it be aware of where you're at. If it's gated, fenced, or posted, um, you need to have permission to go in there. Yeah, uh, number six on the list, staking claims to public land hunting blinds. Uh, do we have those here, uh, are public-type blinds, or, or is that a problem, again, that's kind of downstate? Again, I think it, it's, it relates directly to population numbers. We do have it up here, and I think what they're referring to there is people who put a blind out. Um, there's certain dates when you, can, when you can put a blind out early to, to uh, get your hunting location set up. People roll into town. Some people are up close to each other, not knowing the other individuals there, and you end up in an argument because you feel somebody's too close uh, hunting that right next door to you. So um, it does happen, but most of the time we run into up this way is that the two hunters can, can figure it out amongst themselves. There's no set regulation that say how far you have to be apart from each other. Um, it's just ethics and common courtesy, um, but it does happen in some of the more populated areas. I think. Yeah, and after most most of the hunters up this way, people do have good ethics and, and understand. Sometimes it happens, and they they work it out amongst themselves. That ties in with another point on the list: harassing hunters. Uh, it's not as if we don't have enough elbow room up here. And again, I can see that maybe being more of a problem downstate. Do you have a problem with people uh, getting after other hunters saying, hey, this is where I've hunted for the last 20 years and you're a newbie here and you don't get to hunt here? It does happen. Um, not on a large scale in this area. Um, it does happen. And uh, every year we do have a handful of cases where people feel their, their hunt is being interfered with. And, um, if you interfere with somebody else's illegal hunting activity, it can be construed to be hunter harassment. So please avoid that. Littering is on the list, which I suppose makes a certain amount of sense because anytime we get people out in the woods, there are going to be some people who are thoughtless. Uh, do you run into situations where people have left stuff behind? All the time. Littering is a bigger issue than people tend to realize up here. Uh, 
in our listening area here, people leave their blinds out, they leave their hunting chairs, um, some camps that get set up in some of the public grounds. Uh, many of them do clean up after themselves, and, and like I said, half after them, but we do have a firm out that don't clean up after themselves, um, or they leave their stuff out year-round on, on land that don't belong to them. Um, so it does, it does happen up in this neck of the woods as well. Yeah, and we changed our practices many years ago at our camp. It used to be we'd just take cans and things of that nature, and it was on our property, but we'd take it down the road and we'd dump it and figure it would rot away after years. Well, uh, pretty soon that got kind of unsightly, and now it's quite a strict rule amongst the uh, several of us who operate the camp that you take something in, you take it out, and you take it back home and you put it in the trash there and it's disposed of properly. So uh, make sure that we keep the woods clean for those who are going to be coming out there next. What else do we have? Baiting and attracting. What's the rule about baiting here in the uh, in the Copper Country? John, do you want to cover that one? <laughs> law, law. <laughs> Either way, Mark. Um, sure. I just... Yeah, I can I can cover that as well. It, it's you know the baiting. There are some regulations as to uh, how you can do it. In the Lower Peninsula, it's currently uh, illegal to bait, bait deer. Uh, upper Peninsula, uh, we're fine up in our neck of the woods for our listening area. Just remember, spread it out over a 10, 10 by ten area. Um, no more than two gallons on the ground at a time, and you're fine. Um, like I said, it, it, just realize if you do travel to some different areas of the state. Um, some of your regulations for baiting can change, but as far as, you know, in Houghton, Canada, Bellagons, and Oregon counties, um, you can have your, your two gallons of bait over a 10 by 10 area. All right, and with that, we've got to wrap things up. John DePew and Mark Pomeroy from the DNR, thank you so much for the information, and we hope that everybody has a safe and successful hunting season. Have fun out there. Yes, definitely. Enjoy it. The season of giving kicks in on December 1st with Giving Tuesday. Portage Health Foundation is proud to be matching up to $200,000 in donations to 18 area nonprofits, including Dial Help, Dan Schmidt Gift of Music, Copper Harbor Trails Club, Copper Country Senior Meals, Big Brothers Big Sisters, Barbara Kettle Gunlock Shelter, Barrier County Shelter Home, Amik Village Volunteer Fire and Rescue Department, and 31 Backpacks. See a full list of nonprofits and learn how to donate at phfgive.org slash givingtuesday. I hope you enjoyed this morning's Copper Country Today. And again, thanks to our guests, Kate Beer from the Western UP Health Department and John DePew and Mark Pomeroy from the DNR. If you have a topic that you think we should cover on our program, you can email your suggestion to kreport at up.net. I'm Todd Van Dyke. Copper Country Today is brought to you by the Portage Health Foundation. Learn more about them and their mission at phfgive.org. And remember, the next mobile food pantry underwritten by the Portage Health Foundation will take place Thursday at noon at the Ontonagon Fire Station. You can see more details on our qnrreport.com community calendar. Copper Country Today is a copyrighted public affairs production of Houghton Community Broadcasting. And if you're headed to the woods for opening day, good luck, stay safe.